What percentage of a country needs to adopt a new technology for it to take off? And will Rishi Sunak be better for climate action than Liz Truss? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckersphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a climate communicator. Today is Wednesday, October 24th. Let's jump right into today's news. Let's start with some climate studies. The top two kilometers or one and a quarter miles of the ocean is warming twice as fast as it did in the 1960s, according to a new scientific review published in the journal Nature Reviews, Earth and Environment. The review, which was a collaboration between scientists from Australia, New Zealand, China, the UK, France, and the US, determined that the extra heat is accelerating sea level rise, intensifying extreme rain events, melting ice, adding more energy to cyclones, and changing changing where they form, and causing more intense marine heat waves. For example, the extra heat in the Coral and Tasman Sea has been linked to the recent intensive rainfall event in Victoria, Australia. What's interesting is that one of the co-authors of this review said, quote, where the rain occurs is determined by the La Nina, but the amount that occurs and its intensity has the extra ingredients of global warming. I was wondering about this distinction since we're in a rare triple La Nina, so that's good to know. The heat is also threatening the health of the world's coral reefs and reducing how much carbon the oceans can take up. That's a lot of impact. What's worse is that the top layer of water is expected to get twice as hot by the end of this century. While this is happening everywhere, this heat is the most pronounced in the Southern Ocean and the Atlantic. The heating has also been detected deeper than two kilometers. It's important to look at ocean heating because of all the ways it can impact extreme weather events that I already mentioned, but also because ocean temperature changes are more reliable to view than atmospheric ones because the ocean takes up 90% of the excess heat caused by global warming. Let's go back now to one of the impacts of ocean heating, which is adding more energy to cyclones. Another recent study, this one published in Geophysical Research Letters, looked at the hurricane intensification rate from 1979 to 2018 near the U.S. Atlantic coast. The researchers found that over a 40-year period, the mean 24-hour hurricane intensification rate increased by about 1.2 nautical miles per six hours in that region. What's interesting is that they did not see that same intensification rate near the Gulf Coast during that same time period. But this supports the connection between climate change and more intense hurricane events like Hurricane Ian, which surprised weather models by intensifying to nearly a Category 5 storm before striking Florida's coast. The research also suggests that this climate change-induced increase in the intensification rate will likely continue into the future, resulting in more damaging Atlantic hurricanes. Let's move on to the climate victories now. Did you know that there were tipping points for technological adoption? Yeah, apparently it's 5%. If you can get 5% of the country to adopt the technology, the growth rate will go from dragging its feet to an accelerating growth. This is because it takes about a 5% adoption rate to set up supply chains and shift customer preferences. Well, guess what? 87 countries get at least 5% of their energy from clean sources now, meaning their clean energy growth will now grow at an 
an accelerated rate. The US hit the 5% mark in 2011, and now we get more than 20% of our energy from wind and solar. If we follow early adopter country trends, we should expect to get half of our energy from clean sources by 2030 by this adoption rate pattern alone. This is much faster than several major models project. And actually, technologies like solar and wind might grow faster than the average technological adoption rate because the more we make them, the better we are at making them. Bloomberg NEF found that every time the global supply of solar doubles, the price for that technology drops by 30%. Awesome. Now we just need to get that utility scale battery adoption rate to match. It's only been over the last few years that battery prices were low enough to compete in the same way. But now that it is, we will soon see this adoption rate grow. So that's something to keep an eye on. If South Korea and Australia are anything to compare it to, batteries need to reach only a 2 to 5% adoption rate to take off. If you want to read about how other clean energy technologies like heat pumps and EVs are doing at getting adopted, there will be a link to the article that I'm referencing in the source list below. Continuing the theme of some solar adoption, though, India installed two-thirds of its 2022 renewables target mainly through solar, according to the think tank Ember. Put another way, the country upped its solar capacity by 22% in the first eight months of this year. That's a whopping 116 gigawatts of clean energy. India's goal for 2022 is to have 175 gigawatts of clean energy installed by the end of the year. While India is unlikely to reach that target at this point, its next target of installing 450 gigawatts of renewables and 500 gigawatts of non-fossil fuel capacity by 2030 looks within reach. In order to reach this target, India needs to up its clean energy average monthly adoption rate by 2.5 times compared to this year's average. It would probably help if India didn't still provide way more subsidies for fossil fuels than for clean energy. India gives seven to nine times more subsidies to fossil fuels than to wind and solar. In general, renewables still account for a very small percentage of the country's energy supply, but this shows progress towards clean energy. Meanwhile, Australia and Singapore promise to work towards their net zero goals together through what they call a green economy agreement. Both countries have pledged to reach net zero emissions by 2050. This agreement focuses on 17 components of trade and investments that include collaborating on standards and building green growth. This includes electricity, trading, and sustainable aviation fuel development, for example. Singapore is already planning to use solar power from northern Australia transmitted by a 4,200-kilometer or 2,600-mile submarine cable. The construction of this project will begin in 2024. In other Australian news, the Albanese and Andrews governments signed a $1.5 billion agreement to fast-track regulatory processes to develop Victoria's offshore wind capacity faster ahead of federal budget decisions and Victoria's election period. The Clean Energy Finance Corporation, or CEFC, will also provide a concessional loan of about $750 million to ensure the interconnector between Victoria and New South Wales is completed by 2028. The Victorian government wants to have 4 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2035 and 9 gigawatts by 2040. This project is one of five announced by the Labor Party as part of its $20 billion rewiring the nation plan to support the clean energy transition. In Europe, 
Finland's capital Helsinki is getting creative at heating its buildings to get off fossil fuels. The city's power company is partnering with a Spanish building company and a local infrastructure company to construct a tunnel for extracting icy water deep in the Baltic Sea. The salt water will be processed through underground heat pumps in a way that can actually generate enough power to heat up to 40% of the capital's homes. This project will take about seven years to become operational. This heating method is actually used already in smaller cities like Juneau, Alaska, and Dremen, Norway. So it's a thing. Helsinki's facility will become the largest of its kind in the world once built. Moving from clean energy production to energy law, the Netherlands recently became the latest EU country to remove itself from the Energy Charter Treaty. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I discussed the treaty in October 12th episode. But for a brief recap, the treaty gives EU-based energy companies more protections to sue any country in or out of the EU that tries to pass policy the company could see as hurting its profits. Like if a country wants to decarbonize by canceling fossil fuel projects, fossil fuel companies can sue the country using the treaty to discourage this move. The EU and the UK are creating exemptions that allow them to phase out fossil fuels over the next 10 years, but individual countries like Italy, Poland, Spain, and now the Netherlands decided to fully exit the treaty now. The countries have been targets of the treaty more often than home bases for fossil fuel companies using it. The Netherlands has been hit by two Two lawsuits under the treaty from coal plant operators pursuing the government for lost profits due to the country's plan to phase out coal. One of those suits involves Germany utility Uniper, which has said it would drop the case if the German government takes a stake in the dying company. As more countries drop the treaty, more are considering doing it too. France is also looking into that matter, so they're the next country to look at with this. Over in North America, six environmentalists, with the help of the nonprofit EcoJustice, filed a complaint to the Canada's Competition Bureau accusing the Royal Bank of Canada of greenwashing. Greenwashing is when a group claims to be more environmentally friendly than it is. The complaint alleges that the bank advertised that it has pledged to align itself with the Paris Agreement while continuing to finance the fossil fuel industry. The Paris Agreement sees the world decarbonizing fast enough to keep warming well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Because we're already at 1.1 degrees, the International Energy Agency and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have both stated that there's no room to finance any more large fossil fuel projects if we are to meet the Paris Climate Accord goals. So by continuing to finance fossil fuels, it could be argued that the bank is saying one thing but doing the other. The regulatory body has opened an inquiry into this matter. The bank says that the complaint is unfounded. A bit further south, the U.S. announced plans to auction off the first space to floating offshore wind in December. Floating offshore wind turbines are a newer technology that allows for turbines to be located in deeper waters and farther offshore. The five leases to be auctioned off span 373,000 acres or 151,000 hectares off central and northern California. That's enough space to install about 4.5 gigawatts of capacity, which is enough to power more than 3.3 million homes. 43 companies have registered as potential bidders. In Louisiana, a New Orleans federal appeals court ordered a nine-year-old lawsuit filed against fossil fuel companies over wetland damages to be returned to state court for trial. 
Defendants Chevron, ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, BP America, and Shell tried to get the original ruling thrown out, saying the exploration and production operations responsible for the environmental damage was conducted on behalf of the World War II war effort. Yeah, that's how far back this thing goes. As a result, they said the case should be heard in federal court. To be clear, they want this because the federal courts are much more likely to side in favor of fossil fuel companies than the state courts. But the appeals court said that the oil and gas companies were not acting under any orders of any federal agencies, giving them no pass for the damage that they caused. Not only does this put the companies back on the hook for paying a $100 million settlement, but it also creates a path for 41 similar cases to also be heard in Louisiana courts. These suits say the oil and gas industry violated the 1980 State and Local Coastal Resources Management Act, which is Louisiana-specific, so it doesn't qualify for federal ruling. Louisiana is a big fossil fuel hub, so this could be huge if the fossil fuel companies get constantly hit by lawsuit after lawsuit. In more state news, New Jersey officials announced they were suing ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, BP, ConocoPhillips, and the American Petroleum Institute for deceiving the public about how their products would impact the planet despite knowing better. The suit seeks civil penalties and damages, including damages to the state's wetlands. It alleges taxpayers have had to pay billions of dollars to make up for the damage these fossil fuel companies have caused. This premise of a lawsuit is not new, but it is another lawsuit to keep an eye on. Okay, we need to talk about what's been going on in the UK recently. Mainly that Liz Truss announced that she will step down from the role of Prime Minister, making her the shortest reigning PM in the UK history. The final straw came when Parliament held a vote to officially outlaw fracking to keep Truss from bringing it back. Truss tried to convince ministers to vote against the bill, and her home secretary actually quit after being done with Truss's policy decisions. The parliament voted when Truss left the room to chase after the secretary that quit, but there weren't enough votes to officially ban fracking, unfortunately. Regardless, Truss lost the minister's respect, and despite saying that she would fight calls to resign, she resigned the next day. Now, former economic minister Rishi Sunak is in line to become the first prime minister of color in the UK history, which is pretty cool. But does he support decarbonization efforts? Honestly, he doesn't appear to be much better than Truss in this department. He originally showed an interest for lifting the fracking ban when he was running against Truss, though considering how that pursuit might have lost Truss the job, I'm not sure what Sunak will try to do in that department. The ban has officially been lifted, but he will have the opportunity to define what local support means. He and Trust both said that they would only bring fracking to communities who support that move, but Trust was trying to bypass that promise. So we'll see if he does too. As a reminder, restarting fracking won't impact fossil fuel prices for years, and it's very bad for the environment and regional human health. Sunak will also likely continue to process the ban on solar from farmlands and seems to support the lease sales in the North Sea. He might not be so keen to speed through environmental assessments like Truss was, though, so that might be the one place that he could be better in. But bottom line, he's not really much different than Truss, so the UK is not really in a better spot, unfortunately. And that leads us into the climate fails. Remember, don't get despondent get mad. 
So usually countries want to report as little greenhouse gas emissions as possible, but this year we're going to see something unusual at the UN Climate Conference COP27 in Egypt next month. Russia and Ukraine plan to include Crimea and other Russian-occupied Ukrainian spaces in their emissions tallies. This is just the latest attempt by Russia to gain legitimacy for its invasions. Ukraine's former deputy energy minister explained it like this over the phone to the Washington Post while he and his family take shelter in Kyiv. Quote, this is not about climate arguments, it's about our territory. Russia is trying to use all venues to legitimize the illegal annexation. Every single document that doesn't have footnotes that doesn't say Crimea is Ukrainian is a hybrid diplomacy strategy of Russia to legitimize this. For specifically Crimea, this dispute about who claims its emissions has actually gone on since 2016. Each year, Ukraine has successfully gotten the UN body to add footnotes to every resolution that includes Crimea to show support for Ukraine's claim of the peninsula. But they haven't been successful at discouraging the third largest historical emitter from including Crimea's emissions to its own in the first place. The Net Zero Tracker released a report recently looking at how private companies have been doing at reducing emissions. We hear a lot about public companies because obviously they have more eyes on them, though despite this added attention, they're not doing great at decarbonizing or having decarbonizing pledges in the first place. Since this is on the climate fail section, you probably know that I'm going to say that the private companies are worse. They are. The report looked at the 100 largest private companies in the world, representing about 5% of the global economy, while 69 out of the top 100 publicly listed companies have net zero pledges. Only 32 of the top 100 private companies have one. Of those with net zero targets, only four had a plan to reach that target, compared with 50 in the public companies. And less pledges from private companies include scope three or indirect emissions compared with public companies. This is important because in the case of like fossil fuel companies or banks, indirect emissions represent most of the company's pollution. So it's important to count it. BlackRock continues to revert back into a fossil fuel supporting financial institution. The world's largest asset manager told the UK parliament last week that it won't stop investing in oil, gas, and coal, and that it's not its job to encourage the economy to decarbonize. This statement was specifically directed at the Environmental Audit Committee, which has been looking into the financial institutions in the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS, formed last year during the UN Climate Conference COP26. GFANS is made up of 500 members from more than 45 countries and is meant to help the financial sector drop fossil fuel assets and to decarbonize. But clearly, many of the companies that joined did so for the image, and now that they actually have to show their work, they're threatening to leave the group instead. Vanguard and HSBC are also members of GFANS that told the parliamentary committee that it will continue to invest in fossil fuels. Switching gears for the last climate fail, California might be burning off its own emissions reduction efforts. A new policy study by the Environment Policy Institute at the University of Chicago found that the emissions created by wildfires in California in 2020 was approximately twice as high as the amount of emissions reduction the state achieved from 2003 to 2020. This is without considering vegetation regrowth, but it does take time for plants to grow big enough to make a impact on carbon reductions, so that's fair. 
That makes wildfires the second largest emissions source for 2020 behind transportation, ahead of industry and power sectors in the state. The researchers estimated that the emissions caused by the 2020 wildfire season equates to about $7.1 billion in monetary damages, too. Overall, this shows how important it is for California to invest heavily in forest management and reduce how many homes are built in the urban wilderness interface, aka the place where the fires would kill the homes. Let's finish off today's episode with one more climate victory. The company Sunrun is trying out a new way to engineer the energy grid. It fitted about 5,000 homes in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Vermont with rooftop solar and battery systems. Like with most models, excess energy from those systems gets sent back to the larger grid, but Sunrun won a contract with the New England grid operator back in 2019 to consistently provide 20 megawatts to the grid starting in 2020. It has been able to keep up with this promise, and during the hot summer months, its virtual power plant sent a total of 1.8 gigawatts back to the grid during peak air conditioning time. That's about enough to power an additional 240 homes. The concept of virtual power plants like this is growing in popularity across the country. And that was your climate recap for Monday, October 24th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.